0: If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up to Philippians. We're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, uh, you can use one of our Bibles this morning. Uh, You should find one in the seats in front of you underneath, Uh, and if you use that Bible, you'll find our passage on page 981. Paul is writing a letter, this letter called Philippians is a letter that he's writing from prison. He's imprisoned in Rome and he's writing to a church that he established roughly 10 years earlier. And he's been uh, saying a lot of different things to this church. Uh, If you think back to kind of the last large section that we looked at, what he was stressing in various ways uh, goes all the way back to verse one or chapter one, verse twenty-seven, where he commanded them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he kind of filled in what that meant all the way to chapter two, verse eighteen, and then as uh, Jeff preached last week. Essentially what Paul did was give two examples, Uh, two men, one named Timothy and one Epaphroditus, both of whom uh, sort of give us great examples of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both of whom give us examples of what it means to put others before yourself. So we are at this point this morning halfway through this letter. And our text today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, which says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So as I said, we're, we're halfway through the letter. It, it contains four chapters. Uh, and here Paul begins this section with finally. Now, you might be thinking, well, why is he saying finally if there's still half the letter to go? Well, uh, as you know, preachers have a tendency to say, and I'll close with this, and then go on for 15 more minutes. But I don't really think Paul's doing that. This Greek word, finally, can really simply just mean furthermore, or something like, as for what remains to be said. So what Paul is now doing is that he says, Look, I've said the bulk of what I would like to say, but there's something else that needs to be said, and this is what it is. And you can see here that he begins with rejoice. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. He doesn't seem to be moving on to anything new. Hasn't he already said at least once to rejoice? And yes, he has. He's already told them two times commanded them to rejoice once in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, once in Philippians 2, 29, and he's about to say it again, chapter 4, verse 4, a a verse that many of you know by heart. So he continues and has been continuing to tell them in various ways to rejoice. In fact, you could argue that really that whole section there, Philippians chapter 2, 12 to 18, is really all about rejoicing rather than grumbling and complaining and he recognizes here that he is being very repetitive i mean he says it out loud look at the second half of verse one he says now look to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you he's he's saying look i know i'm being repetitive here He recognizes that, but he uses here a a on-the-one-hand-and-on-the-other-hand construction. He gives two reasons why he keeps saying the same thing to them. And the first reason he gives is he says, look, on the one hand, to tell you to rejoice over and over again is no trouble for me. Paul has to give lots of commands to churches. I mean, we see that all throughout his letters. He's constantly commanding things and i would imagine that some of the things he has to command are things he doesn't really like to say he doesn't really like that he has to give this command i you can imagine for instance you know in first corinthians when he's commanding the church to put outside of itself this evildoer this this man who's sinning greatly i'm sure that's not something he enjoyed having to command as parents You know there are some things that you have to say, but that you don't really enjoy saying, despite what our kids might think. You know, you have to tell them, look, you've disrespected me again, you need to get up into your room again. I don't really like having to say that, but I have to say it. Now, there are other things that you enjoy saying again and again. Hey, I've called you twice, come down here, you gotta open up your presents. It's your birthday. Put the toy down. Open up your presents, right? Paul is really, on the one hand, he, he's just expressing his humanity. Look, I will never get tired of commanding you to rejoice. That's fun for me, he says, isn't it? But, but I think for our purposes today, it's even more important what he gives as the second reason. On, on the one hand, I never grow tired of it. But on the other hand, to tell you to rejoice over and over again is a much safer course for you to follow. It is safer to rejoice for your soul than to do what you might otherwise do. Well, what is Paul talking? Safer than what? Well, he doesn't say here, but I think if we just go back a little bit, what he's been saying we can at least say that rejoicing is safer for our souls than grumbling think about what he has just been telling them throughout this letter this letter has already as we've seen contained a lot of different things that he's mentioned but a lot of what he said has been hard probably to hear First of all, this church in Philippi, they already know that he's imprisoned. That's part of why he's writing to them, is because he's probably caught wind that they're down in the dumps because they know that this missionary that they are supporting, that they hope can go all over the world and and plant more churches and preach the gospel, is languishing in a Roman prison. So he's writing to them to say, hey, rejoice anyway. But think about all the things that he's been saying to them. I mean, he, he's told them, look, there is no one else besides Timothy, who I know, who really cares completely for you and not for, for himself. There's one guy that I know who's really selfless. And that's kind of a, a depressing thing, if you think about it. He's, he's already told them that their fellow church member, the, the beloved Epaphroditus, who they sent from them to encourage Paul to, to bring a gift, got so sick that he almost died. And that in this sickness that uh, may have led to death, Paul was brought to great sorrow. And that had Epaphroditus died, Paul would have, his sorrow would have increased greatly. They, they also know that, that there are guys who are preaching the gospel, but preaching it with horrible motives, selfish motives, that they really want to do Paul harm. They, he's shared with them that, that he's anxious over things. He's shared with them that he's awaiting an uncertain future, a future that might result in his being executed for preaching the gospel. There's a lot in here that's hard to hear. I mean, it's a short letter. You imagine, just imagine, you know, like we sometimes forget that this is a letter to real people. You imagine if we were sent a letter by one of the missionaries that we support, let's say Robin and, and Carlos Alaveros. They, they minister and uh, preach and teach the gospel down in Mexico. What if we received a letter from them and Robin wrote it and she said, hey, I just wanted to let you all know that Carlos has been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, that he's in prison now, that I'm all alone, and that we are uncertain as to what his future is going to be. As I write to you now, I don't know whether he's going to be released or be executed, and I be without a husband. Furthermore, I know that you guys sent down uh, to, be of, uh, to bring me cheer and bring me a gift, Jim and Debbie Ann, and I just wanted to let you guys know that, that they got so sick that they almost died. They're still recovering in the hospital, but, you know, hey, rejoice, Can you imagine, like, if after all of that, that's what they focus on? And yet that's what Paul says. Now, you might be asking yourself, look, as I did, how is that possible? How can I do that? I mean, when things are this bad, when everything seems to be falling apart, how can I rejoice? I mean, he just commands it. Is Paul... Telling me to be phony and to not really express the things that I'm concerned about? Am I supposed to plaster a smile on my face and pretend like everything's fine? Well, no, of course not. I mean, if that were the case, Paul never would share these things that are bad. It's not like Paul is presenting some kind of fantasy world that doesn't exist. He's sharing with them that he's uncertain of the future. He's sharing with them that he has anxiety over that. He's sharing with them that he's been sorrowful over the things that have happened. And yet, at the same time, he's sharing with them that he is rejoicing despite all of these things. And he's calling them to do the same thing. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because, Christian, our joy is rooted not in our situation, but is rooted in the Lord. Our joy is rooted in the Lord. Notice that though Paul has already told them twice to rejoice, for the first time he adds a key phrase. He says, you need to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord rejoicing in the Lord means that you are rejoicing in first of all what the Lord has done for you Paul has already expressed what the Lord has done for them that he humbled himself and went to the cross for them if our Lord has done that for us then we have all cause to rejoice We rejoice in what he has done. Furthermore, we rejoice because we are his. It's not only what he's done for us, but we are his. Paul began the whole letter by saying, you are saints in Christ. You are in Christ. We rejoice because no matter what is going on, we are his. See, our situations in life, are always in flux. It's just true. I mean, I could talk to, uh, to all of you this morning, I could interview each one of you, and, and some of you are having uh, a pretty good time in life, and others of you are having a pretty bad time in life. But all of you could tell me that things constantly change. And each one of you, even those of you who are having a relatively good time in life, can probably tell me of bad things that are still a part of your life. So we don't rejoice in these things. We rejoice that though our lives are always a flux, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's interesting if we go through Scripture to see the situations that Christians are in that nevertheless they rejoice in. It's unbelievable. I mean, just listen to some of the Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, in the sermon on the mount he says blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account you're blessed if these things happen to you and he says rejoice and be glad leap for joy why Because your reward is great in heaven. And because they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's why you can rejoice in the midst of that. In Acts chapter 5, we we find that, that these men who are preaching the gospel are called in, they're hauled in, and they're beaten. They're beaten with rods severely, and they're told and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And then they're set free. And what does it say? Well, Luke says in Acts chapter 5 that when they left the presence of the council, they rejoiced. How can they rejoice after being hauled in and beaten for preaching the gospel? Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's why they could rejoice. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, for your sake because in my flesh I'm filling up that what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church and in first Peter 4 Peter says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you instead rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings See, time and time again in Scripture, we see that despite this horrible situation, there is still cause for rejoicing. And that is because, despite what is happening, Jesus is still alive and working. See, as a Christian, your ability to rejoice is not tied to your circumstances, but to the Lord of your circumstances. And that is why you always have cause to rejoice. And so, Paul here is saying that we can and should rejoice in the Lord. Whatever is going on, because it is safer for our souls to rejoice in the Lord than it is to go down another route. We are presented with different circumstances in life. We've, we talked about this a few sermons ago. And again, as I just mentioned, the, these circumstances can be good or bad. As a Christian, uh, when these things hit us, we can go down different roads, just like the Israelites did. We can go down the road of grumbling and complaining. Paul is saying it's safer for you To rejoice because rejoicing helps you see that the Lord is working no matter what your circumstances are. But there's another reason that rejoicing in the Lord is safer for our souls. Again, Paul doesn't explicitly state this, but I think it's what he's getting at with what he is about to say in verse 2. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard against abandoning the gospel of grace. Paul now goes on to speak not just of rejoicing, but of discerning. Verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. So Paul follows up his command to rejoice in the Lord by giving a different command three times. He basically says, I want you not only to rejoice in the Lord, but I want you to beware of the dogs. I want you to beware of the workers of evil, and I want you to beware of those who who mutilate the flesh. Now, we might say, well, who's Paul talking about? Is he is he warning against three different people or three different groups of people? No, he's talking about the same group. He's talking about one group, and he's labeling them three different ways. We have to remember that this church in Philippi is it's, it's basically, in, in many ways, a brand new church. I mean, it was planted 10 years earlier, roughly. But even though it's been around for 10 years, remember, this is the first century. This church, any church that Paul plants, is not resting like we are upon thousands of years of church history. It's not resting upon creeds and confessions and councils and theologians and preachers of the past. Catechisms that we can remind ourselves of. This is a basically a a brand new church, and this church was called out of paganism. This church is, is living in first century Rome in a time when paganism ruled. And in paganism, what you had, yes, you had gods, but as Paul makes the distinction in Acts 17 on Mars Hill when he's debating there in Athens, the God that he is preaching is totally unlike these gods of the Romans and the Greeks. The pagan gods were finite. They, were, they needed things from us. Paul comes out and says, look, the God that I'm talking about doesn't need anything from anyone. He is the creator of all. Don't think that you can give him anything that he needs. He is self-sufficient. He is completely of himself, eternal. Paul is contrasting that, of course, his God, the God of the Bible, with all of their pantheon of gods. And in pagan uh, Rome, the the way you uh, kind of interacted with, with the gods is you scratch their back and they'll scratch yours. You do something for them, you give them something, and they will help you out. That was how the pagan world operated. And Paul comes along and he preaches to them, no, that's not how our relationship with God works. God doesn't need anything from you. In fact, you owe him everything. You have failed to give him anything that you owe, you, uh, that, that you owe him, and so in fact, to be saved, you don't scratch his back, he does everything for you. You bring nothing to the table but your failures, and he provides by grace alone, His Son to save you. That was a drastic difference from the message that they understood. And if there was one thing that ever really angered Paul, you see him oftentimes again, just like in in, in Philippians, uh, being filled with joy, expressing uh, great theological truths with joy and excitement. But if there was one thing that really angered him, It was when the gospel of grace that he preached got twisted by others. And from the beginning of the church, there was one group that you see over and over again that constantly tried to twist the gospel that Paul preached. And they were what are called the Judaizers. We see this this group... Defined in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers. They came into the church, they started telling Christians this unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here they had been taught that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And then these Judaizers came in and said, Yes you are saved by faith and circumcision. But unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it is when these guys start saying this kind of thing that Paul goes ballistic. Over and over again, just read the beginning of the letter to the Galatians. You see more anger at what's happening in Galatia, that the gospel is being lost because in Galatia they were tempted to follow these Judaizers. You see more anger there than, than, say, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth where they have all kinds of moral failings going on, but the gospel is not so much at stake. And so Paul is, is angered whenever even anything even something that God commanded in the Old Testament. It's not like these guys are saying, yeah, you're saved by faith in Jesus and faith in Zeus, right? It was be circumcised. That was something, that was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. And even with that being the one thing that was added, Paul is angry. If you want to see really the difference in Paul's attitude uh, here, you can even see it in this letter. In Philippians because just think back to his attitude towards believers who were preaching the true gospel yet with horrible motives remember that he said hey there are these guys who are preaching the gospel they're believers but they're doing it out of envy for me they're doing it to hurt me they're doing it with the worst possible motives and yet what does he conclude it's it's interesting he says what then am i angry about it well only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth christ is proclaimed and in that i rejoice now these guys these judaizers we don't know what what their attitude was how they came into the church in in philippi but they've obviously infiltrated at some level And they may be the nicest guys in the world, but Paul has nothing but the the harshest terms for these people. For Paul, it seems it is far more important that a horrible jerk proclaim the true gospel than that a nice guy twist and pervert it. That's what Paul believes. Again, he Doesn't like people being a jerk. He calls these guys out on being selfish, on being envious, on doing it for the wrong motives. I'm sure if he had to talk to them, he would correct them and tell them they need to live holy lives. But these Judaizers that had infiltrated, look at how Paul describes them. He begins, first of all, by saying, Beware of the dogs. Now we might think, well, Paul's just using a derogatory term, but not really. It's actually far worse than that. And it's interesting that Paul calls them this. Because dogs were a term that the Jews always used of the Gentiles. And when the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs, they were calling them that because they knew that the Gentiles were excluded from the family of God. They knew that the Gentiles were unclean. They knew that they were dogs and not children, that they belonged outside of the household of God. And so it's huge here. We have to understand that this Paul saying this is so much bigger than just him using some kind of derogatory term. What he's saying is that he's reversing what the Jews have always said. He's saying, no, 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 no. You Gentile Philippians, you are the children of God. It is these Judaizers who are the dogs. They are the unclean. They are outside of the family of God. Paul is is saying something this shocking to make it as clear as possible. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. He's making it as clear as possible that it, it is the person who adds works to the gospel of grace, even one who is unclean before God and excluded from the family of God. One New Testament scholar says this, the point at issue is at once simple and decisive. Paul describes as dogs, as excluded from the fellowship of the people of God, those who put a plus sign after Christ in their teaching about salvation. Christ plus this is how you're saved. Paul is saying, no, those are the dogs. But he goes on to say they are not only dogs, they are workers of evil. It is they, not you. I know they're telling you that if you're not circumcised, you're in danger. That if you're not circumcised, you are going to be looked upon as God, as evil, and cast out. No, no, it is they who are the workers of evil why because they insist upon circumcision for salvation now did paul think that circumcision in and of itself was evil that circumcision just as a, an external thing that someone might do uh, for sanitary purposes or whatever was an evil thing no no, as a matter of fact, when he talks about circumcision, uh, he talks about it as basically a good thing. He says circumcision as a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was good if you followed it for its intended purpose. If you did it so that it could be a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But Paul understood once he came to faith in christ that it was only a sign paul understood once he came to faith in christ that it was never a work that saved you it was a sign of salvation in christ in fact it's interesting if you read through the old testament you see that the israelites began to look at these things things such as circumcision things such as the sacrificial system as in and of themselves works that kept them in good standing with God. That as long as they were circumcised, as long as they were children of Abraham and and followed these rules and regulations, they were fine. They could live whatever life they wanted as, as long as they carried that mark on themselves. And they began to pride themselves in being children of Abraham That's what saved them. But we can see, even in the Old Testament, before Paul ever came along and preached this, that God said, that's insufficient. Deuteronomy 10, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires that you fear the Lord your God, that you walk in all of His ways, that you love Him, that you serve Him with your heart and your soul. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Jeremiah 4, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and Jerusalem. God was even telling them, even then, that your heart needs to be turned towards me. Paul, in the book of Romans, he says, look, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have have the written code and circumcision but break the law. He says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter and Paul in Galatians says we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so it isn't that circumcision is in and of itself an evil work but it was the insistence that circumcision was necessary to add for salvation And that's why Paul refers to them yet a third way. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Paul here uses a a word when he talks about the mutilation. He uses a word that's very close to the same, the Greek word that you use for circumcision. It's a play on words. And what Paul is saying is outwardly, what they're telling you to do is be circumcised. But if You look at their motives and why it is they're telling you to be circumcised. Really, all they're trying to get you to do is mutilate your flesh for no good reason. And then he follows it all up with verse 3. He says, look, we are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul is saying to them and what he's saying to us this morning is dear Christians you and I don't need circumcision because we are the circumcision what does he mean by that such a strange phrase we are the circumcision i think it's made clear in the book of colossians colossians 2:11 paul says this in him meaning christ Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What Paul is saying to us is that in Christ, in him, the Christian has already undergone a circumcision of sorts. When we were united to Christ In his death on the cross, we were united to him as he was cut off. We were united to him as he was rejected by God. We were united to him as he was put out beyond the city walls. We were united to him as he was mutilated for our sins. That is what Paul says. We were united to him in a circumcision that was made without hands. It was a circumcision, a a cutting off, a mutilation that Christ received by the hands of God for our sins. Paul says, we have died with him, we were buried with him, and we have been raised with him. And as Paul points out in that same section, now circumcision is no longer the sign of the covenant, but baptism. Because circumcision has reached its fulfillment. And that it pointed to the cutting off of the Messiah for his people. One New Testament scholar puts it this way. We are the circumcision. Not the true as compared with the false, but the only circumcision there is. We are the only Israel. The sons of Abraham, the children of the covenant, the chosen inheritors of the promise. And that's what Paul says in Galatians. He says, "Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, it is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, if we, Christian, are the circumcision if circumcision is no longer needed and if no work is needed, then what is it that characterizes those who are the true circumcision? What is it that characterizes those who are truly saved? Well, Paul tells us. He gives, to close out, three characteristics of the true Christian. The true Christian, worshiped by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. First, they worship by the Spirit of God. There are a lot of people that go to church. There are a lot of people that do religious activities, becoming less and less these days. But you can see a lot of people that, that will say, hey, you know what, I worship God in my own way, or... You know, hey, I've gone to church my whole life. None of that matters. In the end, none of it matters if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You can worship by doing activities, but if you're not doing it by the power of the Spirit, then you're simply going through the motions. That's all you're doing. Jesus says in John, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In the Old Testament, you see, again, God complaining that Israel is going through the motions. He says, look, I've had enough of burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls. Bring no more vain offerings. Israel, you are going through the motions. You need a heart change. You need a heart transplant. And that's exactly what God promised he would do. In the prophets, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, God says that there is coming a new covenant. A covenant that will not be like the old, which was all external pressure to try to obey my laws that you can't do. I will make a new covenant with you where I will reach into your heart I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be cleansed. I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. You shall dwell in the land that I shall give your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The true Christian is one who worships Not by going through the motions, but this worship is driven by the Spirit of God within you. You're not coerced by external pressure to do anything. It's interesting, at different jobs I've had over the years uh, before I became a pastor, uh, co-workers, sometimes, you know, eventually they would find out that I go to church every Sunday. And inevitably, they thought... And they drew the conclusion that I was going to church in order to get to heaven. That the reason I was going to church every Sunday, the reason I didn't go out partying with them at night, whatever it might be that they were doing that I refrained from doing, or whatever it was that I did that they hated doing, they thought I did it to get in good with God. It just made sense to them. They were operating under a pagan, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And I had to tell them and and correct them every time. No, no, look, I go to church on Sunday and worship because I want to. It's actually enjoyable for me. And they looked at me like I had two heads. To them, it made no sense. Why would you do something that boring? Why? Because if, if any of them ever stepped into a church, it wasn't out of an inward drive created by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what true Christians do. They worship by the Spirit of God. Secondly, they glory in Christ Jesus. That Greek word here translated glory, it just means boast. What do you pride yourself in? What do you boast in? Jeremiah nine twenty three and 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Without the work of the Spirit, we inevitably boast in ourselves. That's what happens. I mean, even with the Spirit, oftentimes I find that I fall into boasting about myself. It's it's only with the Spirit that our boasting begins to go away from us and on to Christ. Think about it. If we're saved by grace alone, if the Holy Spirit is a gift given by grace, if Christ is a gift given by grace, then what room do we have for boasting anymore? If the only thing I brought to the table was my sin and my need of a Savior, what can I boast about? My boasting is stripped from me. And Christians begin to understand that. Christians come to that realization when they flee to Christ for salvation, the Spirit enlightens them to the fact that they have nothing and they need Christ. But the longer that we live as Christians, the more and more we begin to boast in Him. And you probably have seen that. Long-time Christians, you go and you ask them, how are you doing today? They might say, better than I deserve. They, they, they're always, what, how are things going? Well, by God's grace, things are going well. They begin more and more and more to give everything to the Lord, anything good in their lives. And if, and if you are sitting here even this morning, or or if you find that sometimes you're sitting here in worship and you begin to get annoyed at the fact that we constantly lift up Christ at the expense of ourselves, then you might want to ask yourself if you know the Lord. Because a Christian loves to lift up Christ at the expense of himself. A Christian loves to be reminded and be convicted, yes, I have lifted myself up too much this week. I want to glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian finds that he is bothered by his desire to be known and lifted up. And so if you're bothered by Christ being lifted up, if inside you're thinking, why why don't you lift me up every once in a while and tell me how good I am every once in a while, you might want to check your heart. Because a true Christian glories in Christ. And lastly, a true Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. We're going to delve deeply into this what it means to put confidence in the flesh next week because Paul gives us an amazing example of this but the question I have for you this morning is are you putting confidence in anything outside of Christ for your right standing with God as you sit here this morning, are you thinking that the way that God's going to accept me or the way that He does accept me is by something that I do? Over the years, I've talked to many people, and, and you talk to them, you get a million reasons why someone's going to end up in glory with God. A million different answers are given. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. That tends to be the number one answer. I'm pretty good. I think God in the end is going to look at me and accept me for what I do. Sometimes it's, I go to church on a regular, I've gone to church my whole life. Oftentimes, all you need to do is die to be immediately in the presence of God. It doesn't matter how you lived your life. Nowadays, go to any funeral. What do you hear? He's in a better place. He's looking down from heaven on us. Why? What right does he have to be with God based on the life that he lived? Are we justified by death alone? The true Christian, one way or the other, understands that he is saved completely, totally, and finally by Jesus Christ alone, not by anything that he or she does. Christian, as you sit here this morning, are you putting confidence in the flesh? Now, probably 99% of you, hopefully 100% of you that are members here, would say, no, no. I know I'm saved completely by the blood of Christ, that I'm a sinner and that Jesus has to save me completely. I hope that's what all of you, if you're members of here, would say. But ask yourself, do I subtly, in other ways, put confidence in the flesh so that God would look favorably upon me? Do you sometimes look to yourself rather than to Christ for how God sees you? I guarantee all of you do that because I know I do that. That's one of the reasons why I so love that book Gentle and Lowly and so many Christians love that book because what that book reminds you is that Jesus loves when we come to him in repentance of our sin. So often we, as those who are saved by Christ, think, I know I'm saved by him, but there's no way God can look favorably upon me anymore, not after what I've done this week. And so we turn away from Christ and bear that sin ourselves rather than go to him who says, come to me. You who are gentle, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christian, when Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath, he drank it all. There was none left for you. None. Martin Luther's famous hymn, I'll close with this A mighty fortress, has this line One little word shall fell him. I found out a few years ago that the word that Luther was talking about was liar. I never knew what that was until I read a a, a book by a church historian, and he said, The word that Luther was talking about is liar. That When God finally puts Satan away once and for all, the word that he will say to him is, Satan, you are a liar. That's exactly what Jesus said of him when he was on earth. He is a liar and the father of lies. He cannot tell the truth. So when Satan comes to you, he doesn't have to make things up about what you've done. He doesn't have to make you look worse than you already know you are. All he has to do is point out what you've done. That's not the lie. The lie is when he says, because of what you've done, God can't love you anymore. And Luther says that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can look at Satan and simply say, Satan, you lie. Luther says this, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And that, Christian, is why we return to the first verse again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice this morning not in what you have done, but in what he has done. Rejoice that he who is mighty, the one who took on flesh, the one who conquered death's sting, the one who has shattered the darkness, has lifted your shame. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for our Lord. We are thankful that we can rejoice in him this morning and not in ourselves. And we lift him up, the one who alone has secured our salvation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.